Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're talking about high-performance medicine, healthcare, and innovation. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in identifying how to navigate the disruptive trends we're facing and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. With me today is returning guest, Brian Ferguson, Brian spent 15 years working in high-performance organizations, learning from leaders and decision-makers in national security, the military, and in technology. He used these experiences to build Arena Labs, a company focused on catalyzing human potential by leveraging the wisdom and experience of the men and women who have achieved extraordinary success. And I would count Brian among those leaders, and he'll tell us more about his experiences when we launch. The COVID pandemic has elevated a long overlooked narrative. We ask a lot of our nurses, doctors, and frontline medical staff who shepherd our communities in times of public health crisis. And while they're required to step into unknown, high pressure and high stress work, we don't equip them with the same tools and resilience and recovery that we do for professional athletes and elite military units. Brian joins me today to discuss how Arena Labs is focused on pioneering what they call high-performance medicine in order to bring these same tools, training, and technology to frontline medical teams. And Brian will elaborate more on this, but these same tools and techniques that we can use for the medical arena also apply to leaders across other fields. So Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Maureen. Good to be back. So what do you want to share with our listeners about your background before we jump in? Well, I I think you hit most of it. The context, I suppose, that's relevant to my current work, I think like any of us, I've got the benefit now of retrospect, but as you mentioned there, the the first part of my life and really my first passion was in national security. And for those who are not in national security, it can be a daunting term, but it really encompasses all parts of the government that are focused on the security, both of the US and partners and global presence. And so that's everything from diplomacy to intelligence to the military. In the time that I was in that world, just after 9-11, it was an extraordinary time to see how large organizations, or in this case, the US government made decisions of consequence at scale in an increasingly overwhelmed information environment. So make faster decisions with more information. And as it turns out, that ends up, I I think for most of your listeners, probably being one of the bigger challenges of the 21st century. So I learned a lot in that time. And then I went into uniform and I had the privilege of serving in the military in the special operations community. And there, you know, on, on one hand, there's the mission and the opportunity to serve And then there's also this element of just being around truly extraordinary people and being on teams that are regularly pushing the envelope around performance. And what does it mean to be in a tribal environment, so to speak, where people really are bettering each other every day? And that became my passion. And in the course of my last job in the military, I met a heart surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute, and he introduced me to the world of cardiac surgery. I had gone in to spend some time with him to to understand how 
that particular institution was thinking about risk and performance in the context of 21st century technology. So as, as you might imagine, the modern operating room, particularly for heart surgery, is very sophisticated. There's a lot of technology and, and you still have a team of eight to 12 people who are making time-sensitive, consequential decisions in that environment. And so in looking to understand that environment and how it might apply to the military, I was exposed to the reality that on one hand, we have this amazing world where medicine has become incredibly advanced. And on the other side of that, there is very little focus still on both the human and individual level around performance and stress and the collective team, frontline surgical team. And that was really serendipitous because it introduced me to the healthcare environment. And, and that began the birth of my company now, Arena Labs, and our focus in healthcare. And I'd say, you know, probably lastly, I, I grew up in healthcare. My mom was a nurse. And so I've always, I talk often about our kitchen table growing up and the conversations we had about that world and, and the challenges and stressors. And so to be working on that now on the other side, 20 some years later is, is a real privilege. Yeah, it's interesting. My kitchen table was military intelligence. So we, we, we had different conversations than many kids did. Yeah. What era was he serving in, in Intel? Vietnam and post-Vietnam. Okay. Wow. That's really interesting. I'm sure that the geopolitics of the time were made you more enlightened about the world than most kids. Yeah. I remember a conversation about assassinating foreign leaders, and that's probably not what most kids' parents were talking about at the dinner table. <laughs> An early Which, introduction into <laughs> philosophy and ethics. That's fascinating. Yeah, it led me to think my dad was really James Bond, which, <laughs> which still entertains him because he is not. <laughs> he couldn't tell you if he was anyways. Yeah, so he said he's not. <laughs> anyway, on to our topic. You named your company Arena Labs. Why is that? So there's a, a quote that I is increasingly what I'll call mainstream and in, in modern culture, colloquially referred to as the man in the arena quote, everyone from Brene Brown to LeBron James have popularized it, but it comes from Teddy Roosevelt. And so, so Roosevelt, after he finished his presidency, he was, for, for those who are interested in these things, a, a fascinating character who actually, I think, is one of the few modern characters who's transcendent, meaning, you know, he certainly had parts of his life that we can, you know, through the retrospect of history, examine more deeply in question. But in general, he's a fascinating person who really you don't see mired in a lot of the same challenges that people of that time were through their legacy. One of the things Roosevelt really believed in was his idea of what he called the strenuous life, doing hard things and not letting the trappings of success inhibit your continued growth. In 1910, he goes to Paris, to the Sorbonne, and he's giving a speech to a group of very accomplished French leaders. For those who are interested, I highly recommend the full text of the speech. It's called Citizenship in a Republic. It is beautiful, and it is actually in the year 2020, perhaps more relevant than it was in 1910. But there's a paragraph in that speech, again, that, that many people have heard, but I'll, I'll just read it because I think it's inspiring for this time. It is not the critic who counts, not the man or woman who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. 
And so that has always really been in the DNA of something that's inspired me about a way to live. And frankly, the people who inspire me, especially in today's world, where in a digital age, we can very easily be on the margins of life or be trolls on the internet. But the people who are in the, the arena of the operating room, in the arena of the battlefield, in the arena of the boardroom, doing hard things, building, creating, I've always been inspired by that DNA of what that means. And so Arena Labs is really this idea of a laboratory of that idea of being in the arena, not on the sidelines of life. And so really proud we've built a company of people who come from those types of backgrounds, be it in medicine and the military and the creative arts or any other endeavor that, that really requires that, that worthy commitment and service. I want to go then to the word of labs. And this gets to something I think is crucial with leadership right now. You're saying in the arena and in the laboratory of the arena, right? That there is no longer an operating manual for what happens in the arena. We're writing it right now. Yeah. And that requires a scientific mindset or a laboratory mindset, not a, a lockstep follow the rules mindset. 100% Maureen. And, and actually the subtext of what you just said, I think is what we call our, you know, internally our most important operating principle, which is humility. And I often say that the definition to me of humility is, is not the absence of braggadocious or being overly or unnecessarily humble. It is the idea that no matter how much you've learned, there's more to learn. There's, there's more to understand about the world. It's a, it's a learner's mindset. And when you think about the context of the 21st century and how much dynamism and change and complexity and, and the lack of predictability there is, if one can truly build a humble learning organization and be humble, I, I truly believe that that is the key to successfully navigating mm -hmm. such dynamic times, whether you're in business or medicine. And so the idea of laboratory is exactly what you're focusing on. It's, it's learning, applying those lessons and iterating and, and doing that constantly. And I, I want to build on that. We also talk about humility a lot. And with humility means I, if I'm experimenting, I have to admit that I didn't get it quite right. 100%. Right. And if I'm afraid of acknowledging falling short of my own standards or yours, then I'm in the game of covering it up. Yes. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons that I often talk about this. I, I would say that if I think about the military culture, it, it often, I think, can be over, overly mythologized, especially in business culture, in terms of the analogs and how we apply certain, mm -hmm. certain parts of the military culture. But the one thing the military does unequivocally better than any other organization I've ever seen is what is known as after action reviews or debriefs. And, mm -hmm. and that is simply putting structure around what you just talked about, whether it's at the individual level or at the collective slash team level. How do we take what we learned from a training event, maybe a real world mission, an entire cycle of operations and be ruthlessly introspective about where we stand and what we could have done better? What did we do well? And when an organization can reach, you know, it, it, frankly, this is what we talk a lot about in healthcare, that is the bedrock of trust. Trust is not the, the touchy-feely, what I often refer to as sort of the, the way it's been popularized today and, and turns a lot of people off. It's the ability to be openly critical and honest of yourself and of your teammates or your colleagues. And if, if you have that, that is true humility and allows that learner's mindset to be present. Thank you. I, th I think while we haven't jumped yet into the details of healthcare, this ground setting for everyone and the idea that, especially in a time of disruption, these are foundational, 
for all leaders and especially in healthcare. And it seems like you have chosen the two professions that are truly life and death professions. Yeah. And, and I, well, a, a couple things. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. People in medicine often refer to military and they say, hey, no one's shooting at us. Or, and, and I often say that, you know, the, ex, the idea of an existential life and death event doesn't make one more consequential than the other that, you know, anyone who has dedicated their life to something, that the idea of not living up to that level of service in a way becomes an existential threat. So it's, it feels equally consequential. The thing that is, I find very parallel between the two cultures, this is what we often say in healthcare, is that if you sit down with someone in serving in the military or serving in medicine, if you really strip down why they're there or, or why they chose to be there, there's three reasons for it. One is they want to do hard things. They want to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And they want to feel like that challenge matters. Second, they want to do, do things of consequence to the world. They want to impact society. And the third is they want to save lives. And that shows up very differently. And, and they're, they're, you know, to the front end of our conversation, I was sort of tongue-in-cheek kidding about conversations on the dinner table. But, but however one philosophically thinks about saving lives in, in the military or in the medical environment, there's a lot beneath that that's powerful and one can harness that in a team environment it leads to what we call the inspired soul people doing things that transcend themselves and and that are bigger than themselves and that's that's a really Mm -hmm. powerful human experience i'm working right now with a team that is an oncology organization and and specifically one of the people co-writing this book is is a head and neck cancer person they are in fact using some of the newest technology right now to deliver radiation in a way that will potentially cure, and I realize that word isn't used in the cancer space, will mm. will enable the body to heal itself of some of these cancers. That if this yeah. proves out, our world will be different. It is through the dedication of folks who put every bit of their soul into delivering that outcome. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about matters of consequence. I mean, I think mm-hmm. most people have been touched by cancer in some way. And you think about perhaps like the most vulnerable of, of human emotional periods and, and to be able to affect that time. I mean, that that is changing the course of lives at scale. And that's perhaps a, at a high level, a way to wrap up why we, we our team, most people are not from healthcare. And so we feel mm-hmm. a real privilege to be in that space. And we always talk about mute, working from a place of mutual respect of people doing hard things and then contributing to what we call the sacred world of medicine. I invite our listeners to think about what are the hard things that you are absolutely dedicated to enacting, making better in your professional life and your personal life. Today, you are joining Brian Ferguson and Maureen Metcalf. We're talking about high-performance medicine, healthcare, and innovation. Um, How has COVID-19 impacted frontline medical teams, Brian? Well, even, you know, prior to COVID, you know, the, the genesis of our work, frankly, is this notion of high-performance medicine, which put very simply, most people listening here are in some way likely inspired by someone who is in the world of elite athletics. Maybe they're an Olympian, maybe they're a professional sports team, someone who's a creative performer, perhaps in Cirque du Soleil or a, a famous musician, or someone who serves in the military. And when you think about those three disciplines, the creative arts, sports, and the military, there is an extraordinary amount of money and investment that goes into making sure that those athletes, those performers, and those soldiers, sailors, or airmen are prepared for a career that is high pressure and high stress. And in order to do that, they are given typically a set of tools, some training, and and oftentimes in in today's world, technology 
to, to at the end of the day, show up and do their job to the best of their ability when it matters most. And high performance medicine is the idea of bringing that entire way of thinking and that set of tools, technology, and training into healthcare. Because amazingly, this is an oversimplification, but, but as a generalized truth, healthcare does not think the same way. People do incredibly hard things, but they typically are focused on technical training. And so what we often see is in a world of elevated medical operations in a demanding environment on the front lines of healthcare, we're seeing higher levels of stress and, and you increasingly see burnout be a massive issue. Mo if you talk mm -hmm. to most healthcare leaders, Maureen, burnout is one of the number one concerns and it, it costs annually about $4.6 billion, which is people turning over, people leaving their jobs or medical errors. So in general, that, that became the, the foundation of how do we go at that problem and provide frontline teams some real value to begin alleviating that pressure and burnout. COVID, as you might imagine, has elevated the narrative of our work in ways that we could not have imagined. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is imagine yourself. I mean, there, there are people who go into healthcare knowing they're going to do really hard things, but imagine yourself. In fact, my cousin is a prime example. She's a, an ICU nurse in the Washington DC area. And she suddenly finds herself early on in COVID before we knew a lot going in to take care of these patients, not really sure what that meant for her or her family. And without some of those tools to manage that level of stress and pressure, that's incredibly consequential at the human level individually. And then mm -hmm. at the collective level, when we start thinking about our healthcare system and the stress it puts on the, the overall architecture. With that as the context, then how are hospitals dealing with the stress of the pandemic and the second order consequences that come with it, both to the individuals and to the larger system? If we just visit the landscape, again, this is based on what we learned from our partners. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a frontline medical practitioner, so I don't want to detract from those people who are going in every day, putting on scrubs and dealing with this reality. But if we think about everything we've learned with hundreds of conversations and talking to hospitals all over the country, there's a, there's a couple of buckets that, and, and frankly, to answer your question in a, in a very succinct, short way, people are learning and learning how to deal with this. But the, the bigger concern is that there's, there's really two buckets. There are people in a place like New York City, hospitals that saw a major surge and are dealing with the consequence now of how do we help that staff navigate what was an incredibly impactful high stress time and get the, the hospital back to a state of let's call steady state operations, thinking there might, you know, th this, this may continue to be an episodic sine wave cycle of stress and work. And then there are hospitals that continued to wait and it never quite came. And so they were left in this, this sort of state of limbo. And in both instances, there's a real stress. In some cases, it's more acute. But the, the, the question that hospitals are navigating is twofold. One, how do we take care of people who are impacted in really significant ways and, and dealt with a lot of loss and pressure they didn't expect? And then how do we think about preparing our staff for an environment where most hospitals today are frankly trying to survive in, in economic mm -hmm. terms? And what that means is that if we get through this pandemic, whenever that is, on the backside, we're going to have to return to make up for a real loss of revenue in 2020. And that means, means increasing elective procedures, increasing operational tempo. So that, that staff's coming out of a stressful time going into a higher state of, of work. And at the end of the day, the question is, how do we give our staff the tools and training to be ready for that? And, and to be resilient in the face of what's going to continue to be dynamic times. And those, I think, whether you're, you know, even frankly, for people listening in business or who are teachers, I suspect you have some element of that same narrative at play in your current craft. 
It's interesting because I'm seeing in the couple of hospital systems within which I work, they are for the same budgetary reasons you just mentioned. They're cutting staff, they're cutting additional services that support staff. And so folks are already being asked to elevate the volume of work in a time that is more emotionally stressful than traditional. Absolutely. And, and I, I, what I often say is that healthcare right now is a microcosm of society. It is, of course, a, a bit more acute, in some cases, a lot more acute in terms of that day-to-day stress. But people in healthcare are having to navigate new, new and uncertain times and restructure mm-hmm. organizations and personnel. And I see it, our friends who are teachers or who are in education are in, in similar times of uncertainty. And you throw in the news cycle and information comes a level of stress. And so what we focus on is how then do we start to focus on the tools that allow us to navigate? And what can we learn here to, to make our teams better on the backside? So that's a great lead into the next question. You talked about after action reports early on. What organizations or leaders are you seeing that are doing the best and what are they doing? In healthcare, if I'm being honest, I still have not seen a lot of institutions that at a collective level really commit to doing this. And that is oftentimes not because of an unwillingness to do so, mm-hmm. but because of cultural norms that often focus on the need to take care of the issue of the day. Heads down, we have work to do. We don't have mm-hmm. time to stop. It's counterintuitive, but it, it's actually the most important thing you have to do because if you keep doing what you're doing without stopping and learning, those bad habits, those, those opportunities to learn and evolve are missed. Generally speaking, there are, you know, I, I would say smaller teams tend to do this well, where there is that prevalence of humility, and this is part of the culture. As I said earlier on, the, the military does this better than any organization at scale. So we've worked, done work with an organization called the McChrystal Group. For those who are really interested in, in the mm-hmm. after action process, they've written prolifically about it. It's, it's General Stan McChrystal, retired four-star general from the, the Army Special Operations Community. But their team, to include Chris Fussell, has done a lot to help healthcare think about how to do this at scale. And then what we really focus on is, is bringing this into a frontline environment where you know it's, it's frankly not hard, Maureen. It's actually a basic process, but I would say basic doesn't mean easy. And cultural change to get a team to stop and learn and give everybody a, a voice at the front line that's a major culture shift. And so what mm-hmm. we end up seeing is we say the front and the back end of the bell curve. So organizations that want to stay world-class and push the envelope, they know they have to evolve and do things that are new. And then organizations that are, that are really struggling and failing and recognize they don't have a choice. But the middle of that curve, you, you tend to see people want to stick with the status quo. One of the processes or frameworks we use looks at what do I believe? How do I behave? what's our culture and what are our systems and processes? And to your point, if you're not changing all of those concurrently, the misalignment creates churn and loss of, loss of productivity. So even if I think being a learning organization is helpful, or even if I think soliciting input from others is helpful in the midst of a difficult surgery or a contentious tumor board, we will often fall back into our habits. Just to make a point here that, because I I think for a listener, particularly someone not in healthcare or frankly, someone in healthcare, this can feel a little bit ethereal or esoteric. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm reticent to be overly prescriptive in organizations that I'm not a part of. And I often, mm -hmm. as I said earlier, I think over borrowing on tools from one discipline to the other, there, there's got to be mm -hmm. nuance. But if I was to offer an observation that we see not only in healthcare, but is very prevalent in business and, and even in sport, I think there is a growing, I don't want to say tension. The tension is natural. But if we think about frontline, people who are truly on the front line, in sport, that's the players on the field. In the military, that is your platoon that is deployed, boots on the ground. In the military, that's your frontline staff. Or excuse me, in the, in the medicine, in the that's your frontline medical staff, yes. What's interesting is that in a world where, think about COVID and how much change and dynamism, you, you have these people who are heads down doing the thing, whatever that mm -hmm. thing is, in, in this case, surgery. And then you have people who are very well-intentioned, who are trying to strategically plan the future in a dynamic, unforeseen environment. These are the people in the boardroom. These might, this might be your CEO, your leadership team. And so the real question I think to ask yourself is what is the connection between our frontline personnel and the strategic decision makers, our leadership team? And more importantly, how are we getting raw, honest feedback about what's working and what's not? Because it's very natural in a time of crisis, certainly in national security, but we're seeing this in healthcare for the people who are working hard to think about the future and budgets and resources and jobs to be heads down thinking about that. And then the people in the operating room to be heads down, taking care of patients and that bridge is missing. And mm -hmm. so what that lends itself to is people starting to move into silos. And if you don't have very structured processes to be openly critical and learn those worlds start to grow apart. And that, that is really where you, you I think you know, that's, that's the absence of, of that real humility and, and opportunity to learn. Well, and to your point, then we have cultures of, we may say we have an open door policy or whatever you call it, but for most people, the frontline supervisor does not go into the head of strategy or the CEO's office to say, this isn't working. Having worked in organizations where our C-level folks said they had open door policies, and then one of them particularly would come into my office and say, who's that guy and why does he work here? It is, or can be career limiting if one is not careful how the input is solicited and how it's delivered. And that's, I think, in my observation, part of what inhibits the bridge. It's an important point because this moves from the theory into the practice. Mm -hmm. And what I've observed in a number of disciplines, you know, both again in government and in healthcare and business is that you can have a cultural norm and, and you can say, we're a learning organization and we debrief. But the question is, what are the mechanisms in play? And we talk a lot about style and mechanism. As an example, one of the limiting factors that you see very present. So in the military, as an example, you have classified information. In business, mm -hmm. you might have financially sensitive information. In medicine, you have very sensitive patient information. Uh, Those things often become, an ex exactly, they become excuses that limit how information moves. And so organizations, back to your question, that are doing this really well, I think are being most creative in two elements. One is the style. How is it that we're getting, how are we reaching our frontline staff to get that insight and input? So we're not putting them in the example you give and the awkward position of over, overstepping and overreaching and putting their jobs in the line. The more important part is mechanism. And this gets to, it feels overly simplistic, but if, if anyone listening thinks about how most people on their team, particularly the, the new hires at the lower level who are younger, they're operating on their phone, they're, they're, 
absorbing information. This is, you know, this has been the case for a decade now through social media, et cetera. How do you touch and meet people there so that you can elicit feedback? You know, whether that's YouTube, I mean, it, it sounds overly simplistic, but what often happens is we build these really complex intranets internally and no one uses them. Mm-hmm. And, and we suggest that people are giving feedback on them and then, and we don't ever actually get what we're after. And so building those mechanisms and those processes is really critical in order for that bridge to, to be at play. I think that's a brilliant point that the mechanisms that used to work often with our younger, younger employees. So the, the divide is not only senior, junior, it's also even within a same department, older, younger at times, or technology proficient and technology uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I realize some of our technology proficient can be older folks as well. So it's not an age issue, but it is a, certainly a comfort with technology. And it's an important point. It's, it's why you do the work you do, which is leadership. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. where leadership is consequential. I mean, we can we can talk the technical side of any craft and we can talk debriefing and, and what do we need to do in a crisis. At the end of the day, success is predicated on leaders who understand those nuances, who say, look, I've got a wide demographic of people in my organization. I'm being lazy if I'm saying a town hall is the only solution. I need to think about some other mechanisms in order to get a wider range of inputs and, and elicit feedback. And the leaders who do that creatively and proactively, you, that, that's where you see organizations thriving and growing. Brilliant. We are with Brian Ferguson and Maureen Metcalf. We're talking about high-performance medicine, healthcare, and innovation. Brian, how is this time period changing medicine? What's your research telling you? The quote-unquote research we're doing really is applied, I suppose, of, of the conversations we're having, the people we are around in healthcare who are giving us feedback on, on what's working, what's not, what, what are their challenges. And if we zoom out, I, I think there is, to, to the front end of our conversation, a necessary way, the narrative around stress and, and the relationship between performance tools and health of frontline teams in healthcare has been elevated in extraordinary ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means for the future of medicine is institutions that, I, personally, our, our belief at Arena is, in fact, we talk about the future world-class healthcare is not in regulatory solutions, policy, or technology, it's in building high-performing teams. And that's a, that is equipping people with these tools to manage stress and pressure and feel resilient, whether it's a pandemic or, or any other public health crisis. So what does that actually mean very tactically? You're going to continue to see an investment in equipping teams with tools around resilience. That's at the individual and at the team level. It's very interesting, Maureen. It's parallel, I would argue, to what you saw in the military community over the last 15, 20 years. That is the, the, the intensity of, of two wars, very mm-hmm. high operational deployment schedules. It took a real human toll on people who willingly dedicated themselves to something larger, but were giving up more than they could afford. And so those tools around mental health, around recovery, the proactive side of stress, I think is going to continue to be the cachet of the future in healthcare. Before break, we're talking about leadership. I think it's going to translate into leaders that, you know, I had a conversation with a good friend who's an ER doc in New York City, and he said, this this is really going to be a moment of reckoning in healthcare. And there's going to be a lot of leaders who we're going to see go away because they didn't lead when it mattered. And it's not to put blame on people, but it's to say how, when it mattered, did you leverage your human capital and look out for them and take Mm -hmm. everything you were learning to improve? And so what we see are these leaders who are emerging, who are creative, who have a fresh approach, and are multidisciplinary in thinking about how they develop 
human systems and the 21st century in healthcare in a way that, that allows them to be more resilient. And there's a lot we can unpack in that. But I, at the end of the day, I think this is, you know, this is going to sound cliche, but I really think it's a paradigm shift in healthcare in a, in a much needed way. It makes perfect sense. And, and we have seen for decades the impact of resilience on the health of the person and the health of the organization. And when assuming I am not resilient, it means I am less effective in my job the days I show up. I am more likely to be sick and absent and potentially exit. So all of those, back to your point of it's the individual and it's the collective, that even one person on the team not doing their job because they are overwhelmed, sick, just not well. So not that they're slackers, but that they're given all they've got and it's not enough. This is a really important point that I'm going to ground in medicine, but it is, it applies to anyone listening who's a leader. But if, if, if we go to the, the front end of our discussion around healthcare and that it is, you know, my, the conversations I had around my dining room table growing up with my mom, who's a nurse, mm-hmm. it's comprised of people who want to do hard things. They want to impact the world and they want to save lives. And the archetype of that personality is someone who is service oriented and service minded. When you are a leader, if you don't protect and look out for the realities of, of how that person will overcommit and overserve, what you set yourself up for is an organization that becomes very broken because people go beyond, they go as far as they can until they burn mm-hmm. out or they, they do get sick or they're not taking care of themselves. And this is why leadership right now matters so much across the board. But I, I think we see it in a more acute way in healthcare. And we certainly saw it in the military. This was the greatest, I think, sub-narrative of the last 20 years in the military was mm-hmm. evolving around how do we take care of our people in high pressure, high stress environments. And, and we saw the mental health costs that it played out. And the family cost. I had a personal friend who deployed six times, six yeah. times. I saw the impact on my family growing up with just two deployments Six means his son barely knows who he is. It's a a really important point. And and one of the things that we talk about is if you think about, you know, if if you've been on the front lines of of COVID the last six months, I mean, there's no doubt that that has affected your attention at home, your ability to be present at home, your own health. And these things play out in real ways in our community. It's interesting you bring that up. We're running some larger data collection right now. and, And one of the things we just were interviewing about 50 frontline healthcare workers in an institution. And and each day they're asked a series of questions, one of which is what's the biggest stress of your day? 67% of them said it was, it was the demands of my job, as you might imagine. But the next largest answer at 15% was the demands of my family. And most of those people, it is struggling to balance. And that is interestingly, again, very parallel to what was seen in the military. And so what happened, and and to the credit of of the special operations community, there was a massive investment made in what we called resilience programming. And that was investing in families and children, babysitters, resources for families, and it had a, you know, played out in a very positive way, but it takes a lot of time. Well, and even things like mindfulness training, right? That the individual was given additional skills that are probably not traditional for special ops. That is a critical point. Because if we, again, zoom out, we're, we're, we're talking about our parallel environments that are high stress and demanding in a service-oriented culture. And mm-hmm. so we're seeing that play out in healthcare where it is about the tools. So you mentioned mindfulness. We teach breathing, visualization. How do you give someone an ability to ground themselves and feel a sense of stability in an unstable environment? 
And then we start looking at what are the things you can control. So in our in the data that we gather, we look at alcohol consumption, we look at caffeine consumption, how much are you sleeping? <laughs> and then more importantly, what we want to do is help you see that data and help the people you work for see that data, not it, at the individual level, this is all blind to leaders, but it's so that they can start to understand trends in their organizations and then give those people tools like, this is something that the military did. How do you teach a family, not just the individual soldier to optimize sleep? How do you have an optimal sleep environment? Because we know the most important tool that you have for performance is sleep. And so we start to invest in these, these very tactical tools and training around those tools that gives people a sense of being more empowered about their own health and performance rather than showing up and grinding in a high operational and tempo environment. And I'll say on a personal level, since the pandemic, this is the, you control what you can. Mm -hmm. I'm heavily focused on sleep, eating healthy food and working out spending time in nature and meditating because mm -hmm. otherwise I would be significantly less effective. It's a really important perspective. If you take that at a higher level, that's the, those types of resources. Now there's a practical reality here. If, you mm -hmm. know, if someone works in healthcare and they don't have time to, to work out every day, what, what are the things that we can think about for an individual that give them that, to your point, that sense of controlling some factors that really matter and more importantly, looking out for their long-term health, because this, you know, from the start, we've seen, this is not a short-term crisis. We're talking about a mm -hmm. longitudinal challenge here that we have to be conscious of. And so these, these hospitals, again, that's why we're seeing this really for us, exciting focus on resilience, employee health, you know, stress mitigation, et cetera, mm -hmm. at the, at a very tactical way. Well, and when I say working out, I have an app that in the morning we do an eight minute workout. So most of us can make eight minutes and there are lots of days that's as good as it gets, but I do encourage people because we live in a world that whose culture is we reward martyrs and mm -hmm. encourage people to go well beyond their limits. So I may already be in inclined to go beyond my limits and everyone around me rewards me for, for that behavior. And so finding ways in 10 minute increments for mindfulness, for working out, for picking up a, a glass of water rather than a cup of coffee, says the woman who's recording in the afternoon with a full <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> you could do hundreds of podcasts with a lot of experts on this, that this, it's a passion of mine. I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert in it, but I will say what I find is a, is a societal trend fascinating is everything you just described, you know, most people listening feel this, this elevated sense of stress and pressure and complexity. And so you see in societal consciousness, this desire to return to ancient rituals. And so there's this resurgence in yoga, ice cold baths in the evening and these things to relax. And th these practices have been around for thousands of years, but we're seeing them show up because people are frankly grappling for a way to return to that basic sense of health. And I, I do think the archetype of the martyr, as you put it, is eroding a bit in at least mainstream thinking in a good way. That is beneficial. So Brian, as our last question, can you give our listeners some very practical activities? We, we've talked about the personal resilience on the more organizational side. What can our organizations do or our leaders do that will help during this time? So three tools to, to make it very practical. One we talked about, which is this idea of what is the learning mechanism you have implemented for your own team and for your organization? And, and we use the parlance in, in our, the conversation we're having, Maureen, of, of an AAR, an after action review, a debrief, whatever you may call it, however that makes sense. Uh, the, the big question is, 
does that exist and is it serving you well? Uh, that I think that is paramount right now in a, in a time mm-hmm. of dynamism. The second one is this may not seem as profound, but I will tell you the leaders I have been most impressed with in healthcare business or otherwise are the leaders whom are grounded in consilience. That sounds like a very fancy term. I guess it is in a way, but I, I learned that from a friend of mine, Michael Mobison, who is the chairman of the Santa Fe Institute on Complexity. And, and consilience is the idea that people from two different disciplines with a shared set of challenges come together. And, and through a conversation, they reach epiphanies because they are talking about the same set of challenges through different language and different angles. And what I believe is in a world that is incredibly dynamic and moving so quickly, it is in very diverse networks of how people think, their exposures, where you see leaders, leaders who have those networks do very well because they're able to pull on different perspectives rapidly. And so organizations that are bringing in outside speakers that are, that are approaching their own craft through the fresh lens of external uh, or, or, or people who are not rooted in that group think, mm-hmm. I, I see that as being invaluable is frankly, what's allowed us to be effective within reason and healthcare. We are people who are grounded in a perspective around teams and performance, but don't have experience in healthcare. So the, the second one I'd say is how are you really assessing not only your, your own ecosystem internally, but the people you bring into that ecosystem to challenge the way that you think and the way that you're evolving. Doing that through a multidisciplinary lens is, I think, paramount. And then the last one is, what data do you have on the health of your teams? Mm-hmm. Uh, in hospitals, we are doing this. We partner with a company called Whoop, which is a wearable device that measures sleep. It measures overall activity and stress. We marry that with other data that we gather so that we can build dashboards for hospitals to understand at the frontline level, how rested are my teams, how stressed are my teams, how resilient are they? And Mm -hmm. that is just as important if you run a a small business or a large organization as it is if you're on the front lines of COVID right now. And I think it is an incredibly exciting time to be alive because these tools have been democratized. They're reasonably cheap and affordable and they're scalable. So there's no reason you can't get really good data on your teams. And what's important about it, not only does it give you as a leader insight into the overall health of your team, it gives those individuals data that, that is a feedback loop for them to learn how they can be better at taking care of themselves in a time that is, frankly, for everyone, I think, uncertain and, and stress-inducing. So as we wrap up then, the pandemic has highlighted that we ask a lot of our medical professionals that we don't equip them in the same way that we equip professional athletes and elite military units. And thanks to organizations like Arena Labs, these efforts are being made to shift that trend and build into medical systems these same high-performance tools that are available to others. So why don't you let our listeners know how they can reach you, Arena Labs, and what tools you have on the website, and then I'm going to wrap us up in about a minute. ArenaLabs.global, that's our our main web domain. You'll find there a lot of resources about how we think, the work we've done. We are in the process, for those who are in healthcare, of building out a digital course that will be a completely immersive learning experience for everyone from medical students and residents to seasoned veterans of healthcare. So that, that will be coming Q1 of, of 2021. And if you're interested, please go to, go to the website or hello at arenalabs.global and we can get you plugged into the monthly resources, newsletters we send out and the types of tools that we're offering to frontline teams. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining 
and highly encourage you to look more at Brian's resources, whether you are in healthcare or not. I look to him as a thought leader across all arenas and his point of consilience that we bring information across arenas. So using what he's learning in healthcare to solve problems in other arenas. Thank you for listening. Please share our information with your friends, like it, and join us again on whatever platform you find most effective.